Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As listeners of our podcast know, each and every week, I meet with a guest from somewhere in the world to discuss the weekly Torah portion. The Torah is divided into 54 portions, which accommodates the uh, unusual Hebrew calendar, which is a mixture of solar and lunar uh, calendars, and also accommodates within each year the unusual constellation of Jewish holidays, some of which fall on Shabbat and do uh, not allow for the weekly reading. So this week, we continue our journey with the patriarch Jacob. We are in Parashat Vayetze. It begins in Genesis 28.10 and continues through Genesis 32.3. Those of you who have been following the story of Jacob know that Jacob now is on the run from his brother Esau, and he leaves his hometown of Beersheba and journeys to Haran. On the way, he encounters what the Torah labels the place, Hamakom, and sleeps there, dreaming of a ladder connecting heaven and earth, which angels climbing and descending it. God appears and promises that the land upon which he lies will be given to his descendants. In the morning, Jacob raises the stone on which he had placed his head as an altar and monument, pledging that it will be made, quote, the house of God. In Haran, Jacob stays and works with his uncle Laban, tending Laban's sheep. Laban agrees to give him his younger daughter, Rachel, whom the text tells us Jacob loves, in marriage in return for seven years of work. But on the wedding night, Laban gives him his elder daughter, Leah, instead, a deception Jacob discovers only in the morning. Jacob marries Rachel, too, a week later, after agreeing for another seven years of work. Leah gives birth to six sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and a daughter, Dina, while Rachel remains barren. Rachel gives Jacob her handmaiden, Bilhah, as a wife to bear children in her stead, and two more sons, Dan and Naphtali, are born. Leah does the same with her handmaiden, Zilpah who gives birth to Gad and Asher. Finally, Rachel's prayers are answered, and she gives birth to Joseph. The Torah portion concludes with telling us that Jacob has been in Haran for 14 years and wishes to return home, but Laban persuades him to remain, now offering him sheep in return for his labor. Jacob prospers despite Laban's repeated attempts to swindle him. 
After six years, Jacob leaves Haran in stealth, fearing that Laban would prevent him from leaving with his family and property for which he labored. Laban pursues Jacob, but is warned by God in a dream not to harm him. Laban and Jacob make a pact on Mont Gelad, attested to by a pile of stones, and Jacob proceeds to the Holy Land, where again he is met by angels. It is a Torah portion uh, filled with drama and intrigue, and with me today is Rabbi Eric Wisnia, Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Beit Chaim in New Jersey. He served that congregation for 42 years as senior rabbi. He earned a bachelor's degree in religious thought from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He was ordained as a rabbi at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1974 and served as an assistant rabbi at Congregation Shomer Emunim in Toledo, Ohio. He received a Doctor of Divinity degree from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 1999. Rabbi Wisnia is known as a scholar and in his retirement has been writing a book on the American Civil War, focusing on uh, the role of uh, Jews in the American South. He is a bon vivant raconteur, and I'm sure you will enjoy listening to him. Rabbi Wisnia, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Why, thank you, Rabbi. I appreciate the accolades. Um, I know that this is a Torah portion that you have given some thought to, and you see it as uh, part of a three-week arc a uh, similar to a uh, drama on TV in which the writers have crafted a three-week arc of a plot. So why don't you try and help our listeners understand that three-week drama? Very good. Thank you. Um, yes, um, the, these three portions, so, you know, beginning last week, Toldot, this week by Yetze, and, uh, and next week as well. Um, I see them uh, as a, a, a TV miniseries. God invented the TV miniseries. Um, and it's, there's so much in these, in these portions to talk about, but I'm going to focus on the storyline of Jacob, our ancestor, because I think that there's a lot of growing up that Jacob does. Last week we met Jacob and his brother Esau, and, and the parashah began last week with the story of uh, Jacob and Esau. And I, I, I sometimes subtitle last week's portion, Jake the Swindler, because Esau was the firstborn of Isaac and Rebekah, and legally he should have gotten the nod from God to receive the special blessing of Isaac, the birthright to be the Jew of the family. And Yaakov is the second son of Isaac and Rebekah. Um, as the second son, by all rights, he shouldn't have gotten anything. Um, but that's not what happened. 
Jacob and Esau were twins. Esau was the firstborn, and the boys are fighting even while they're still in the womb, we're told. They maintain that struggle throughout their lives. While they're teenagers, they're still at it, each one vying to get daddy's blessing and be the favorite. And only one of them, we know, can receive the chosen blessing. The Torah tells us that Yaakov is the, Jacob is the smarter of the two boys, while Esau is strong and a good hunter. hunter. And early in the portion, we're told that Esau is a hairy man, and Yaakov, Jacob, is a smooth man. And I interpret that as, yeah, he's smooth. He's a smooth talker. Two stories are told about the boys last week. The first event with the porridge, which I'm sure you went into last week, Jacob manipulates his brother Esau into giving him the right of receiving his father's blessing in exchange for some soup. And then later, Jacob co-ops their mother, Rebecca, into the scheme. And together, the two of them manipulate Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. He swindles his brother, his father. He co-ops his mother. This guy is not my great ancestor at this point. The portion, the point of this portion is that Jake the Swindler had it all. He was good-looking, we're told. He was his mother's favorite. He was bright. He was a good talker. But he couldn't stand it that his brother was going to get the birthright, even though Esau legitimately was the firstborn. We're told Jacob was smart, good-looking, a silver-tongued devil. He could have been successful at anything in life. How did he use his talents, we're told? He swindles his family. Look, each one of us have been given blessings by God with some talents and some goodness. We should appreciate what we have. Because let me tell you, last week Jacob did not appreciate what he had. He looked around, saw his brother was going to get the blessing and couldn't stand it. And so where did we see him at the end of last week? At the end of last week, Esau realizes that Jacob had twice swindled him, and that his loving brother had cheated him. So he seeks to kill Yaakov. And Esau's a hulking brute. So Yaakov skips town and runs away. He leaves it all, everything he swindled for, and he runs up north. All his lying and conniving came to naught. So that's our great ancestor? Not really. This week, as you told us, Jacob has a dream as he's on the run. And he sees a ladder going up and down from heaven to the place. And we're told it connects heaven to earth. And I think, and I don't really want to spend a lot of time because I want to focus on Jacob. But I think what that line is telling us is that God wants us to act on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we have to bring the heavenly goodness down to earth into our lives. And so far, Jacob has not done that. So, let's go on with this week's parasha, this week's story. Because we see Jake the Swindler grow up. He goes out, he goes up to Haran. And he meets, where, that he goes up there because that's where Rebecca is from, his mother. 
and he begins with brash young Yaakov seeking new fertile ground. And we're going to find out that the swindler gets swindled. Jacob comes up to the tents of Rebecca's brother, Uncle Laban, and here's a safe uh, a haven, he thinks. He's blown his life in Canaan, but here's fertile ground. Uncle Laban is wealthy and successful. He has lands and herds and flocks and two marriageable daughters. And Uncle Laban is only too happy to take in his young nephew as an unpaid apprentice. But the young unpaid apprentice is figuring out how to take over. The two of them are sizing each other up, and the relatives are both going to go to work on each other. Jacob sees his future here. He's going to have it all because he deserves it. So he settles in and he works hard. He's good to the boss. He takes a shine to the boss's daughter, Rachel. Now, I'm not implying that Jacob would marry this girl just over business. That would be impugning negative things to our boy Jake the Swindler. So the Torah tells us that Laban has two daughters. Rachel is very pretty, and Leah is, well, did we say that Rachel is the pretty one? Did I mention yet that Leah is the older daughter, and that Uncle Laban is desperate to marry her off? Jake goes to his loving uncle and proposes a deal. He'll work for seven years for free for Laban, and then Laban should let Jacob marry the gorgeous daughter, Rachel. Laban smiles and says, sure, kid, now I got you. Seven years you work for me with no pay, and I'll give you my daughter in marriage, because that's just the kind of nice guy I am. And that's just how it works. Jacob works for seven years for no pay for Uncle Laban, and then... Laban lets him marry his daughter. And in the Bedouin tradition, the bride is always heavily veiled at the wedding ceremony. Jacob's wedding ceremony is set up. Everyone in Laban's clan is there. The veiled bride is led out to the, from the woman's tent to the chuppah, the marriage canopy. And Yaakov is officially married to Laban's daughter. He lifts the veil to kiss the bride. And who does he see? Leah, the older daughter not Rachel, the one he bargained for. And did I mention that Rachel was the pretty one? Now, in that moment, something happens to Jacob. He realizes his uncle has swindled him. And in his mind, I can imagine that he's thinking to himself, just as he had sweet-talked and lied to his family back home in Canaan, his uncle had now just done it to him. And he doesn't like it. But what makes him Jacob, our ancestor, and not just Jake the swindler, Jake the smooth talker, what makes him into our great ancestor is that next moment, after he realizes he has been swindled by Uncle Laban, I imagine Jacob smiling at Leah and accepting her as his wife without complaint. Now, I'm sure Uncle Laban was not sure how Jacob was going to respond to this ruse, and he probably had his loyal henchmen standing there ready with their swords in case things got ugly. But they don't get ugly, because Jacob understands 
that he has been swindled, just like he did to his family. And he accepts it. As as you've been describing this wonderful uh, story, I'm wondering, do you think that the Torah portion does this intentionally, that the swindler is swindled? Yes, I think that's the point of it, because that's what makes him grow up. Ah. He understands now what it was that he did to his family, and we see a change come over him. Because in the rest of the story, and particularly next week, we're going to find out that Jacob has learned that it doesn't feel so nice when people cheat you, especially your own family whom you trusted. Jacob learns that you can cheat and swindle and get ahead one day, but sooner or later it catches up with you. And Jacob learns that life is not all about money and power. He accepts the turnaround that God has set up for him. And he learns humility, and he becomes a better, kinder, fairer man. And next week, we're going to see that he wants to make up to his family, and he goes home, and he gives Esau everything. When you're describing this beautiful story, which TV would uh, love to dramatize in episodes, uh, probably more than three episodes. I'm wondering, uh, the Torah is intending to offer us uh, a story about the relationship between the Israelite people and God. And yet these three episodes uh, marginalize that relationship and put Jacob's uh, humanity at the uh, central part. God becomes a bystander in this, except for a couple of instances uh, with Rachel giving birth after years of barrenness uh, and a few dream sequences. When you teach this portion, how do you speak to your congregants and others about the sidelining of God, who plays such a preeminent role in uh, previous uh, stories of Abraham and Isaac? Um, I don't see God as being sidelined, although I think you are absolutely correct that God's relationship with, uh, with uh, Abraham and Isaac is certainly the dominant part of that story. But with Jacob and, and in the next, and in the four-week miniseries of uh, Joseph, um, God is not the center, God is the backdrop. You know, Joseph also has to learn. These are stories, I think, the Jacob and Joseph stories are talking to us about our ancestors, and they're talking to us as people. You know, Joseph is just like Jacob. He, he doesn't learn anything. He's a rotten kid. He, he tattletales on his brothers. And God has to send him down to jail, where he's sitting and rotting till he learns a little humility. But I think, Steve, that we can go back to that story about the, the ladder, where angels are going up and down. And, and what are they doing? 
Now, of course, the rabbis like to talk about each angel representing an ancient nation who conquered Israel, and they were an ascendant going up the ladder, and then they collapsed, but, uh, which is a nice midrash, but I see it a little differently. I, I see it that God is bringing his morality down to earth, and God is telling Jacob, listen, kid, one day you'll understand your dream. At the moment, you don't. But the idea here is that we have to be moral, that God has set a standard for us of morality and goodness, which frankly is missing in Jacob's life. And he only comes to it when he himself gets swindled, when he learns a little humility, when he has to suffer. Now, of course, one can ask the question of his, of his descendants, us the Jews, so do we have to suffer to finally learn a little, uh, a little humility? Do we have to suffer to learn that the rule of law is necessary for everybody and that goodness is going to make the world better for everyone or not? But I think that the Jacob and Joseph stories, you're absolutely correct. God is not the center of those stories. It is the transformation that Jacob goes through and that Joseph is going to go through in the next coming weeks. So it's um, an interesting perspective, given that the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, is revered by many as the uh, word of God. And uh, we have been discussing it this morning in a more secular manner. But I want to uh, ask you to spend a few more minutes on this dream sequence, because there are a number of aspects of the dream sequence that uh, stand out for most readers. And I know you must have a particular perspective on some of these. So let's look at it. The latter says it connects heaven and earth and angels are climbing and descending. And then God promises to Jacob that uh, this will be the land that he is promised by right. God. Um, but Jacob's and the question I always have right there, Steve, is why? Why does Jacob deserve it? Good question. As a person, he doesn't deserve it. But as the patriarch. Does he get a, um, what should we say? Does he get some sort of uh, 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 break from God because of his lineage? Um, does God simply... I, I, I don't think is so. It, is it not a reminder? Look, I promised this to Abraham. I promise this to Isaac, who, of course, was kind of a uh, very different character in the narrative. And I'm reminding you that you hold this promise in your back pocket. Maybe you should grow up. Good point. And I think that that's one we, we don't understand. And the text does not really tell us what went through Jacob's mind when he was swindled by give it being given Leah instead of Rachel. But obviously something was going on with him because he realized 
that God has, you know, Laban has done this to me. And I think that the story itself of the latter, when God says to him, you know, Jake, you're supposed to be my boy. You're supposed to be the big ancestor of the Jews here. Why don't you live up to it, kid? Why don't you, you know, change? Why don't you become who you're supposed to be? Because something happens in that moment, and Jacob the swindler, when he gets swindled, does not get angry, does not get even. He says, well, we don't know what he says, but it's obvious to me. He says, you know, God said to me I was supposed to inherit like Abraham and Isaac, my ancestors. Maybe I should try and live up to their role model a little more. Because he accepts it. And that's a big thing for him. It's a major change. So I don't see God as not in the portion. I see God as pivotal in the portion, directing Jacob's life and directing Jacob's history so that next week, and we're going to see he has a dream again. And God is going to come to him and send the angel who they tell us represents his conscience, his ego, and Jacob defeats his ego. And he overcomes it and realizes everything I cheated for, everything I worked for, you know, all the stuff I got from Uncle Abe, I'm going to give to my brother because it doesn't matter. So God here is the power behind the narrative. Yes. That you see the latter episode as uh, awakening Jacob to his responsibilities, that when he rises from this dream, even though in the Torah he tries to bargain with God about his responsibilities and says, God, if you do this, I will do this, he pledges through the building and anointing of a uh, shrine, an altar, that he understands his responsibilities. And that's all God has to do as you read it, because then the narrative carries on and Jacob uh, becomes much more passive. I think that, I won't say that Jacob changes at that moment, at the moment of the latter. I'll say that it wakes Jacob up, and he realizes, okay. you know, everything I cheated my brother and my father, I didn't get it. What's going on here? And God says to him, hey, you're my boy. Live up to it. And Jake does what he has to do. He builds the altar. He goes through the motions. But he hasn't changed much. But yet something has been awoken in him so that when he gets swindled, and let's face it, he thought he was going to swindle Laban. He was not up there to be Mr. Wonderful. He was going to take it all over. But when he gets swindled, I think it hits him. And I think he thinks back to the fact of what he did last Torah portion. And he thinks back to the latter when God says to him, you're supposed to be the teacher, an example of how to be God's boy. What's going on with you, kid? And I think then it hits him. Well, I want to thank you for this very interesting 
overview of this story of Jacob. The narrative will continue next week, as you've alluded to. And you've given us. Tune in next week, as they would say. And of course, you've given us a uh, wonderful way to read the dream sequence that when Jacob wakes up, he truly wakes up. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Eric Wisnia, Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Beth Chaim in New Jersey. I want to thank him for helping us understand the character of Jacob in a new and unusual way. A recording of this uh, morning show is available as a podcast on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and have a good day.